liberation of human beings was a very important thing for me, that people shouldn't be stood over, unjustly treated and, uh, and lied to. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Patrick Lionel Jargon Dodson is a Yarrow man from Broome. He was the first Indigenous Australian to become a Catholic priest and chaired the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation in the crucial years from 1991 to 1997. In 2016, he became a Labor Senator for Western Australia, based in Broome, where he was born 71 years ago. Pat, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thank you very much. Good to, good to see you in Broome. Your grandfather, Mr Darwin, lived for a century, from about 1890 to 1991. What did he mean to you? Oh, he was a great uh, source of wisdom, insight, comfort, uh, steady in the winds of change, um, clear about um, the fundamentals of life, I think, and not easily... Uh, not easily swayed by the passing moods of uh, one person's view or another. So uh, a very grounded man um, who uh, lived through a period of when colonialism was uh, first beginning, I think, in the, in the Kimberley, in the East Kimberley, particularly with my great-grandfather, the Irishman, Joe uh, Fagan, um, and also the first missionaries that were at Beagle Bay, uh, the um, uh, just before the Trappist, I think, and then the Palatines. But uh, um, encountering religions or Catholic religions, and then the mixture of religions on the on the boats, with the uh, Muslims, uh, I suppose Hindus, Buddhists, uh, the various beliefs and customs. Uh, uh, and, and the white folks with their quaint and queer ways of doing things. So a man of of great uh, insight uh, because he could he obviously could read human beings very well. I love the story of him bailing up Queen Elizabeth in 1963 to insist on his rights. Yes, he, uh, he wasn't a man to stand back and obviously he'd, he'd, he'd encountered... The state system under Mr Neville, of course, the, the infamous Mr Neville who controlled people's lives and had lived a free life um, uh, as, a, uh, as a worker, as a stockman, um, and then had to fight the system that had, um, that had impounded my grandmother's uh, inheritance. So he wasn't... Uh, and, he, and he'd worked as a, one of the first uh, 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 Indigenous people employed by what we'd call today the Shire, the old roads board, and they mm. uh, used to go around the town counting the uh, or reading the meters for the water uh, consumption. So he, he wasn't a man to stand back. And if he thought there was someone as significant as as the Queen, 
then he'd put his case. So uh, that's what he did. And tell us the story for people who don't know it. Well, the, the Queen was up near what's called the old, um, where the old Continental Hotel was. There was an area of land there, and there was, in fact, an old cattle truck was parked uh, at the site. So you can imagine the, 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 the waft of the, <laughs> the back of the cattle <laughs> truck and Her Majesty and a lady in waiting um, standing around there for some ceremony that was about to take place. So he went up, went up to her and, uh, when she was standing there and uh, basically said, well, when, why can't we have the equal rights as a white man? And uh, she said, I can see no reason why you shouldn't, uh, Paddy. And uh, he said, all right, OK. Well, and then he said, thank you, and he wandered across the road to the pub and uh, demanded that they serve him a beer because that was the sort of litmus test as to whether you were a citizen or were allowed, allowed to drink was uh, was really a touchstone to that sort of citizenship uh, entitlement. <coughs> and they, of course, refused to uh, serve him. And um, so he uh, he got the Queen's... Uh, um, uh, one of the people that was looking after the Queen, the Esquire, to come across and to inform the, the publican that he was entitled to drink because the Queen had said he could drink so. <laughs> So it must have been a bit of a jolt for a little smoke, sleepy town like Broome that here's Her Majesty uh, visiting and basically uh, uh, my grandfather interpreting her words of, uh, of uh, I can see why you shouldn't be equal <laughs> um, as equality and um, enforcing that. So, um, um, and, and he never um, had trouble from that day onwards. Your parents were... Uh Pretty tough people too. Your mum taken in chains across across the Kimberley. Your dad uh, fighting to to get get her out. Um, they uh, they must have had an extraordinary extraordinary bond, the two of them. I think so. I think that uh, there's a whole story of um, of uh, my mother um, and my two older sisters on the back of the truck of the fellow who was taking them to uh, to uh, Mullabulla Mission. And they'd pulled up outside the um, well, the old Fitzroy Hotel uh, en route, and uh, my dad saw Mum chained and uh, couldn't figure out why this was the case, and so sought to get her out uh, of the chain. And the bloke who was supposedly taking her to the uh, detention camp came out, and he ended up knocking him head over heels, and uh, taking off with her and the kids, my two older sisters, and. So they ran around the parts of the Kimberley in his old Blitz truck because he used to cart uh, uh, things from the wharf from Derby and Broome out to the stations. Uh, and every time he'd leave my mother uh, at a creek or a place uh, before the town where there's water, of course, where she could uh, uh, wait until he, until he came back through. There wouldn't have been much traffic those days. You'd soon know if an old Blitz truck was coming down the road. Yeah. But eventually she decided she'd better go and do her time, so he took her into, into um, Mullabulla and then um, found out that the regime there wasn't, uh, wasn't all, that, uh, all that crash hot. It was a, a pretty rough place uh, from what I gather. And so um, he then uh, rescued her out of there, broke her out of the, out of the compound uh, with my two sisters and he had a mate in league with him, a fellow called Curly Pascoe. And they were the two contractors that were doing this work. And again, she disappeared uh, for, a, for a period of time because they couldn't find him uh, or couldn't find her. 
and, the, and then she um, decided to give uh, give herself up, and, and he did, and he was sent to um, sent south for 18 months uh, for cohabitating with a native. That was a penalty he got. Um, and then uh, the uh, uh, the uh, she the question of him wanting to, to get married was a real challenge because then they had to get the permission of the native protector, as they were called then. I'm not sure whether it was Middleton or someone else, but some some guy was the native protector. And they agreed on, on giving the, the permission, but so long as they left the state, they were not allowed to stay in the in the Western Australia. But by that time, my two older sisters were here in the in the uh, what they what called, was called the orphanage in Broome, and so they had to get them out of here, uh, as well as and I was born by them and my older brother, uh, and so we uh, my older brother stayed here with my granny and grandfather, and the rest of us uh, went across to the territory um, and ended up at Catherine and the. Uh, because that's where the road uh, terminated when you leave from when you leave the west. So we we parked there or set up camp there and stayed there. It's pretty extraordinary that your dad was jailed for 18 months under the Native Administration Act for effectively loving your mother. Yeah, it's a high price to pay. Um, but if you think of the, the draconian philosophies of uh, of um, segregation, really they were. Broome was a town of uh, much segregation. Um, the 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 system that mitigated against the the Muslims uh, was very much in play. Favoured the the Filipinos because they were Catholics, uh, and and the marriage uh, rules were about basically breeding out Aboriginal people and uh, forcing them into into Christian type relationships. Um, so it was a pretty draconian uh, attitude and world. And the, anyone who was white had authority of some form or another and wielded over everyone else. You had a pretty humble birth, about as, about as humble as they come. Uh, tell us about it. I had a pretty interesting birth, I, uh, so I'm told. And again, I've never, <laughs> never had anyone dispute it. But Broome in those days used to rely on the old night carts. They used to come around and, and the little back alleys and change the pans. And uh, uh, one old fellow, old Mr McKenna, who was a, a great old man, he had just changed the, the pans at uh, Mary Street where my mother was living at my granny's house. And uh, she uh, felt, uh, I suppose, me wanting to get out of uh, out and out and into the world, but it happened while she was at the toilet, and I ended up inside the inside this clean bowl. They tell me, but it was full of uh, uh, a thing they used to clean it out was was fen oil, so it had this funny smell. <laughs> but uh, that, that's how I uh, came into the world, and uh, the lady uh, next door uh, came over to help as as the midwife. So uh, yeah, I was pretty fortunate that. Uh, there was, uh, there was people around to help mum at the time and, uh, and I obviously survived. And as you said, you moved to Catherine because it was the end, of the end of the road and then lived under canvas at, at first as, you, as your dad built the house. What are your memories of those early days in Catherine? Uh, a lot of, um, a, a lot of uh, work. My father was a worker. He was constantly uh, either 
he was a mechanic, so he used to do uh, mechanical work, fix his truck, change his motors, all of that sort of thing. Uh, tires and ready his vehicle up to go out bush for five to six months in the in the wet season, and then come in the dry, and then he'd do all the mechanical services. Uh, but when he was there, it was very much uh, we all had to do work. We had to collect wood because we didn't have gas or electric stoves. Everything was uh, by wood wood stoves those days. We had no fridges. Uh, we, we can remember the. Uh, the cool guardy safes as they, when they came in and the, the ice chest that uh, we'd call them eskies now but they were old ice chests that had bags and you put salt on them to keep the ice a bit longer. Um, not a lot of variety of foods. Sweets was a very uh, prized thing. Mm. Uh, the butchers, there was a butcher and a baker in the town. Um, money was... was uh, went a long way in those days, it seems, um, but you didn't have much of it. And so you had to work uh, for the little bit of pocket money if you wanted to go to the, to the movies at the, at the end of the week. There was no television, hmm. no PCs, none of these modern things we have today. Uh, and uh, even phones were rare. The, the phone uh, communication system, people communicated fundamentally by uh, letters uh, through the post office or... Uh, in a state of emergency through telegrams. So uh, it was a, a lot slower world in one sense, but um, very dependent upon the access of, uh, by road of trucks or planes, which were spasmodic, uh, or the telegraph, which, uh, which uh, was the most speediest thing that you'd get communication on. And you'd only ever find out what was going on in the world through the through the, what was called the movie tone movies or whatever they were, little mm. newsreel at the start of the at the start of the movies about international events or national events, otherwise you and, and the radio of course, but not too many people had radios, and if you did, you didn't understand what was going on basically in the world anyway. Uh, so school was was pretty fundamental in terms of the, what you got to, what got you got taught in terms of uh, maths or uh, arithmetic, geography, um, geometry. Um, drawing, you know those sorts of issues, fundamental skills. Uh, so, but it was it was good. Uh, good teachers. Uh, they were pretty much the influence of a of a um, headmaster. The, the quality of the headmaster really set the tone of of the school community, and that was for the parents and friends as much as it was for the kids in the school. Uh, and a lot of loyalty, I think, by the by the kids to the headmaster and, and his wife and. We were under a South Australian system in the Northern Territory at that time with the headmasters, Mr Wadey and, uh, and uh, Mr, um, Mr Collins, the, the two old headmasters I recall very well. Um, and there seemed to be a fairness, but you, you got the strap and you, 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 were, you got uh, physically, physically punished for... Uh, and we'd spend a fair bit of time running away from school, of course. We'd, <laughs> we, we were on the river at Catherine, and when the stockmen came in with their cattle, uh, we would run, take off from school, and the stockmen were only too happy to let us ride the horses while they went off to the pub. So we, we, we were out there tailing the cattle until all hours of the day and night and camping out and missing school so until the police came down to track us down. You talked before about your dad uh, fixing things. He had a pretty strong work ethic, but also 
pretty strong sense of, of justice. He wasn't afraid of uh, standing up for himself if need be. Oh yes, he was a he was a, a pretty. Uh, I'm not sure he's a uh, hot-tempered man, but he would, certainly would stand up to bigger bigger men than himself. I've seen him fight some big men in his time, um, and and he could fight. Uh, I remember him getting hit on the head once by a, a fellow who in a, with a piece of four by two, which almost cracked his his skull, and uh, he was never the same after that. But no, he was a he was a man who. Um, uh, mixed with men in in the dry, there'd be a whole heap of men who had no work, had no job. Uh, basically, would um, would come and camp at our house or at our place and um, do a few odd jobs around the place, nothing strenuous. Uh, and then they'd they'd end up uh, drinking whatever the, they could put their hands on. I suppose. It was, wasn't a, wasn't a, the sort of variety of beers you could get now. I think it was more rum or whiskies that that were around rather than beers. Um, but they were they were itinerant men as well. Some of them probably running from the uh, depression years in the 30s. Uh, you, you never knew what their real names were or where they'd come from, um, and you never knew where they disappeared to. So they just sort of come and go, and sometimes you'd see them and then they'd disappear for years, and some you never ever saw again. You've spoken about uh, hiding in the long grass, watching the welfare take kids uh, kids away. What does that do to a kid in terms of how you think about your relationship with the government and the authorities? Well, the welfare were never too far from your door as a kid growing up because they uh, they were always looking for opportunities, I think, to take kids away off their parents for one reason or another. It didn't have to be much. Uh, if they they thought that, that you were being neglected in their in, in their eyes, but you could be well looked after by your family. And uh, there was a, an occasion when uh, I was in the front part of the yard at home, and this uh, other young lady, your young girl, came running uh, towards me at speed and grabbed my arm and just pulled me and said, "Run!" And we both I just followed her, and we raced and got up onto a bit of a hill where we could look back on the back in the direction we'd come from and we could see the police chasing other relations and um, picking them up and putting them in the back of the van and the kids screaming and uh, and, and yelling and we would make sure we were hidden so they wouldn't wouldn't see us and chase us down and I met those people uh, later in life uh, uh, who uh, they were taken over to Croker Island uh, in the north and uh, grew up basically away from family until uh, their adult lives. And, and then, you know, went south, sent south basically and married and formed their own sort of relations down there. But um, I, met, I met that particular bloke, Helping Heart, uh, some years ago at a funeral in, in, the, in the Territory. And I recall that event and he said, oh, well, that was me. I didn't know what his name was at the time. But uh, he said, that was me. And I said, oh, my goodness. You know, and he was, he was a bit older than me but uh, and, and fairer skin. But the, the, uh, the system was a, was a really uh, fearful thing. You, you wouldn't say good day to a policeman in the street because they'd think you were being smart. Uh, you had to wear a shirt even though it was hot. Um, and if there were more than about three of you in a sitting around as kids do in the in the street, they'd disperse you. And if you gave any lip, then you'd be taken down the station and spoken to. And sometimes some of them got a bit of a belting, 
But it was a it was an authoritarian regime, uh, which didn't allow for uh, for any kind of uh, uh, any kind of tolerance. I think for uh, the way Aboriginal people live and behave and enjoy their lives. Um, and uh, you contrast that with old people who used to carry water. They'd work all day in the front yards of some of these people and carry their water on yokes back to their camps at night uh, and do that the next day. Uh, well, the, you'd see the, the beneficiaries of their efforts would have clean clothes walking down the streets the next day. And these old people would, would be uh, working away there for day, from daylight till sundown, basically, and having to carry their water. Uh, the, the injustice was pretty patent, it was pretty obvious. Um, why it existed was never clear, um, and why, this, why the segregation, because it was an internalised thing, because you had people who were, who were um, sucked into the system who thought that they were um, better than the Aboriginal person, even though they were Aboriginal people themselves, and who felt that they were acceptable somehow into the white system. And uh, when the push comes to shove, they were, they were treated just as harshly. Uh, but they were, they were conned by some of the some of the uh, uh, false, you know, sense of equality that was perpetrated at the time. I think you were twelve when suddenly you lost both your parents within just a, a three-month period. Um, your dad shot, and your mother that terrible accident falling off a bridge. Must have been devastating for you and and your brother Mick. Oh, it was a it was a it was a it was like a big chasm opening up. Uh, what to do, where to go, who who was going to look after you, uh, how are you going to survive? Uh, the only other time that anything like that or felt anything like that was when the coppers put my mother in jail for six months, uh, on the basis that they said she disgraced the Queen's uniform, but they didn't even have uniforms on. They were plain clothes coppers in a cafe. So it was a, it was a, well, you know, how to, uh, you almost pulled up before a huge precipice and you've got to work out fairly quickly which way and how you're going to get across the gulf and manage your, uh, your life going forward and how you're going to survive. I was, I was fortunate, I think, that my older sister was, uh, was in, in Catherine um, and w was prepared to sort of extend her generosity to bringing us up as much as her own kids at the time. Mm. So, um, and that was, a, that was a hard slog. She had to take the system on because um, they were hell-bent on us being sent over to Garden Point uh, as, as orphans and as the wards of the state. So uh, there were many arguments she put up and uh, we'd worked out internally that uh, I was the oldest. So uh, if I could uh, stay with her for a year and finish my primary school, then I could go to work and help supplement the income and bring my other brothers and sister out of the out of the mission over time. Now, whether that would have happened or not, I don't know, but uh, that was the plan. And uh, when the time came, it, uh, it worked out a bit differently than, than that. But um, you, you had to uh, work out ways to, uh, to get around the welfare. Um, otherwise, they would dictate and determine your life and your futures, basically. 
So within not too long, you find yourself down in Monavay College in, uh, in Victoria. Must have been a completely different environment from anything you'd been used to up until then. Oh, it absolutely was. <laughs> it, it was uh, uh, I'd got to the stage where um, I was wanting to, to leave school and go to work. And by that stage, my sister decided, no, you're better off going to school rather than going to work and continuing to go to school because she could see that education was a, was a tremendously important uh, tool to, to have um, in order to deal with the challenges of the world and, and the welfares and the police and whoever else you had to deal with. That wasn't my idea. My idea was, well, I'm going to go go and uh, well, go to work. And me and another uh, young fellow ran away to go droving with a with a fellow down into Queensland. But word got out, and they came and got us in the middle of the night and brought us back. And so it was then that I got sent to um, to uh, Victoria because I said, well, you may as well send me somewhere. It needs to be far away, otherwise we're walking back home. <laughs> <laughs> and I had no idea how how far um, Hamilton or where Hamilton was in the in the Western Districts of Victoria. Uh, initially there was some talk of sending me to some place at uh, Charters Towers, which uh, I thought, well, that's pretty close. That's near Mount Isa. I know where Mount Isa is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you you thrive in this environment. I mean, within a few years, you're you're the head prefect, captain of, uh, of football, playing centre-half back. Uh, what was it that gave you that resilience after becoming an orphan, being thrown into this unfamiliar school, to to get to the top of the pack? Oh, I think it was the um, um, the realization that uh, education uh, was an important, a seriously important uh, uh, thing to get involved in. And, and there were many aspects to education. It wasn't just one thing. English was a big feature of education and um, being able to understand what people are talking about and know what words are and uh, how arguments work and all of those things was, was, was critically important. But also the other subjects, history, and uh, uh, history was important because then you got to know how things were done or not done and who took what from whom. Um, and, and maths and other matters were, uh, were important. So I, uh, I didn't mind uh, school or, or secondary school, boarding school. I really had, the, uh, had uh, made a, a good relationship with the family uh, from the Western Districts, the, the Gartland family, who um, had, uh, had a couple, one of their, uh, their youngest son was at school with me, then he left. Um, at, at uh, third year and went back to work on the farm but I'd sp still spend all, most of my holidays out of their farm till, uh, throughout till matriculation and uh, they were a great family um, I got treated just as one of the one of the family um, and uh, you know I used to go to the footy with, out of Caston and whatever was going on did worked up there during the holidays with the sheep and cattle and hay carting and rabbiting and all of those things that young kids on the farms do and they were good to me um, so um, I think the the challenge at the end was when I decided I was going to go and be a priest and that really wasn't uh, something that uh, old mum Gartland was happy about she thought that was a bit of a bit of a brainwash show that the uh, 
that the priest had, uh, had perpetrated upon me. Uh, because she'd come a, a, a couple of years beforehand when the welfare um, was sending up the forms to, I had to fill out, you know, are there sheets on the bed? Do you get three meals when you go out there, etc. And I came home and said, look, look at this form I've got to fill out. And she said, you tell me when that bloke comes up next and uh, <laughs> uh, just ring up. And so they came across and uh, I never saw the welfare man again after that. They, uh, <laughs> and she, she'd been a matron of the hospital. So she, she knew about about the right ways to deal with people. And I was a young man, I was, uh, you know, 15, 16, I suppose. Uh, and, of course, to make these accusations that that there may not have been sheets on the bed of a, of a uh, cocky's uh, farmer's wife, <laughs> it's just not acceptable. Anyway, they were good to me, and so I, was, I saw that there were good people in the, amongst the, the white folks, um, that there was a distinction between... Uh, peoples, uh, white folks and, and Aboriginal people, but within groups of people. Uh, and um, But it was a, a, a fairly uh, um, a fairly sad... I remember the occasion because Mrs Gartland ended up with, with cancer and she was very, very uh, concerned that this was... whether this was the right decision. I think she was probably right at the end of the day, but at that time it didn't look like it. Yeah. What was it that drew you towards taking those vows of poverty and chastity and obedience uh, as a young man? I think it was the uh, the way people's lives are um, were, were basically discarded. And my experience was people were, uh, if they'd broken some church law, felt that they were going to go to hell and forever condemned and there was no sort of redress to that despite the sacrament of confession and all those things but there was this notion that peoples weren't worthy in some way and had to keep justifying their worthiness and I, I didn't think that was the what the message was um, and I thought well there's there's got to be a challenge to the church as much as there has to be to the society over uh, how it goes about its business as much as how the how the society goes about its business, and that people need to know that they're, um, this thing they call the good news is in fact the good news. It, it is a liberation, um, and that um, there is there is some seriousness to that. And you don't have to live under this this bond of shame and guilt and uh, uh, and a sense of rejection. And uh, and I thought, well, that's an important thing to get that message back to people that I knew initially. I wasn't, wasn't thinking of going and proselytising other people. I thought, well, there are a lot of people I know who, who used to say they live in sin because their marriages are broken up, they live with someone, there's no way out of that system. Or that they'd done something and they didn't think they could ever uh, get any forgiveness. I thought, well, that's not right. That's, that's not how it works. You know? So that was the uh, initial... Um, uh, my initial motives for, for that, I'd had other aspirations, of course, of being... I'd seen the, the beginnings of the boom in the in the top end with the mining and thought, you know, um, becoming a, a, an engineer of some type mightn't be a bad thing to do. Uh, no aspirations to go into politics, but, but, but to be part of the industry, to be a worker. Um, but I, But the liberation of human beings was a very important thing for me, that... People shouldn't be stood over, unjustly treated, 
and uh, and lied to. That's that uh, that I think was part of my motivation. Your uh, uh, ordination in 1975 was a, a huge event in Broome. People coming from from all round to see Australia's first Aboriginal priest. How did you go about reconciling your Aboriginality and your Catholicism? You've spoken a bit about the holy places in Jerusalem and the parallels there with Indigenous sacred yeah. spaces. Were there other ways in which you, you drew those two worlds together? Yes, there was, and, and, and I had to have, have a struggle with the order at the time uh, because uh, so there are important aspects of uh, cultural knowledge that I don't have, and that I should be—I should have—I should have exposure to to understand uh, my responsibilities from from a cultural point of view. And I'd argue that there's therefore a need to that I should you should get leave from the studies for 12 months to come back uh, to Broome and be part of uh, an immersement in in cultural life. Uh, and of course, that was seen as some kind of reversion to paganism, or that I was going to expose myself to some kind of sinfulness, or whatever it was. The ideas about what um, Aboriginal religion was, or spirituality was, was very, very, uh, very slender indeed uh, by the by the um, my religious uh, authorities. Um, and so it was a it was. Um, a reluctance to to let me do that, but there was a very good priest here at the time who was tolerant towards that, um, and but but he was conservative as well. But at least there was an openness towards um, involvement in the ceremonies and and the cultural life, and, and not seeing that as some sort of pagan rituals. Mm. Um, so that that. Um, was difficult for some of my family, let alone the church people, because some of the families, when I, when I did go to they didn't know how to relate to me. So you're sort of put into a different category. Um, you're not you're not father, son, brother, cousin. You're, you're just we don't know what to call you now. You're, you're in a different category of uh, existence, and people put you on a on a perch that is uh, as if there's. Um, there's extremely high expectations at that level of it, but also uh, there's a sense of, uh, of of isolation as well. So uh, uh, how to... Uh, uh, because the church was very much a, a middle-class um, structure. Uh, it wasn't really... Uh, it could empathise with the poor in the place, but it wasn't really living the life of the poor in that way. Did you hope that in those early stages you could reshape the church to be what you wanted it to be? Uh, certainly to the bigger issues, to the bigger issues, I would, the support for land rights, support for uh, uh, the unique uh, religious beliefs of Aboriginal people, support for people's um, rights against uh, developers and miners, those sorts which underpin the land rights struggle, of course. Um, and and a, and a right to be uh, uniquely uh, a, a, a people according to their their cultures and their practices. Um, that uh, that was a constant tension, and that there was I think some thought there was some kind of uh, of um, of um, 
uh, similarity with uh, with uh, what's it with the um, uh, Christianity when you have a rule of, of, of religious rule and and uh, and secular rule mm -hmm. uh, like uh, the fears that people have about uh, the Muslim laws and, and Western legal structures but this was some kind of uh, that you, you you couldn't evolve a modification one way or another in in uh, influencing each other's structures so and so that was that was hard so adapting ritual was always a hard thing uh, to accommodate people's place uh, d adapting um, ceremony ritual ceremony from the church the the, the, the ritual uh, order of things in a, in, a, in a manual as opposed to following a ceremonial mm. uh, practice, particularly at Easter, the Easter ceremonies, the Festival of Light, uh, using fire from the, from the fireplace rather than, you know, candles and um, having a different dance, adopting the dances of, uh, of people that were akin to this dreaming about fire rather than uh, the, uh, the linkages that were um, you're meant to follow this ritual and somehow that would make it transparently clear to others and who belong to another culture. So there's always a battle around those that there was just as much salvation going on so long as people, from my point of view, so long as people were practising uh, in a truthful way what they believed. Um, they were capable of being saved. Uh, I, I couldn't see these demarcations that some people saw. You began to break with the church in the early 1980s um, after the, the birth of your daughter, Grace. Uh, but one of the things you did before you finished off with the church was to officiate at the funeral of the notorious Australian author, Xavier Herbert. Um, what, what was that like? It was an interesting, uh, an interesting event because uh, the people that he was closest to uh, sent a message that uh, they didn't want any Christian type of um, ceremonial uh, practice associated with his burial. And uh, he thought, well, that's going to be a challenge. Uh, <laughs> and then um, his executor, I think, was a, was a doctor whose name was um, Dr. Dr. Butcher, I think his name was, Dr. Butcher. Anyway, he was a, a very decent man. Um, and uh, I said, well, how are we going to work this ritual out? And I said, well, let's uh, drape his coffin in an Aboriginal flag and we can talk about his struggle to deal with and try and grapple with the, the um, ways in which uh, the white people basically try to assimilate blackfellas and how blackfellas reacted towards, towards that. And that there was a, this, this uh, notion that the uh, theft of these lands would always leave the white folks as a, as a race of thieves because they'd never uh, restored the justice to First Nations or to the Aboriginal people. So I said, well, we'll build something around all of that. And, uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, when I got started the, um, the, the, uh, the, the ceremony and started to talk in those terms, I'd, the senior, the senior man from the family said uh, he, he wanted to say something and then he started to talk about Jesus and, 
and salvation. <laughs> so well, I'll, I'll give up here. <laughs> Just bury this old fellow with the flag and all, and, and let's hope that this does him justice. But I'd had a few arguments with him over the times of um, of um, of the conquest of uh, Aboriginal people by the white guys. Uh, they were interesting arguments with old Xavier. Um, but anyway, he was he was a, he was he was on a quest to find something, and I'm not sure whether he ever found it before he died. But uh, I always recall he's uh, referring to the Australian uh, white folks as a race of thieves because they'd stolen the land of the Aboriginal people and had never given it back or never provided any recompense about it. So that, that was that was it was a big occasion. So he was buried there in Alice Springs. Uh, with the Aboriginal flag, and I think I threw my notes into this into the grave at the time, so, so they would go into posterity or be eaten out by the elements. Yeah. You've always been generous to the Catholic Church since you since you left. Does faith play a significant role in your in your life today? Do you do you pray regularly? No, I don't do that. I uh, I uh, I think. F- Faith is a, is becoming more of a search for the fullness of humanity. In in a sense, how does how do you enable humans to become the full potential of whom they're meant to be, uh, without um, necessarily requiring some sort of divine actions to intervene to make that happen. So just by how, through friendships, through um, uh, discussion, dialogue, uh, search, um, inquiry, um, and, and encouragement and challenge, I suppose, of other humans, how do you um, create a, a world where no one is left in isolation or outside of the richness that that uh, an economy or a, or a um, uh, you know that we can provide to people and that people do have a sense of dignity and worth and uh, not just uh, not just um, be cast out. I remember once at Port Keats when the people had gone, they'd been put under a lot of pressure by the authorities and they broke into the club and smashed the place to pieces. And I remember a, a, a man walking around um, uh, and I pulled him up because he was out of his tree and he's basically just saying in language, I'm nothing, I'm no one, I'm makadu, makadu. And I thought, well, that's a very hard and strange thing for a man of the country, language, law, custom, to say that they were nothing, uh, they'd become nothing. Yeah. Uh, because of the consequences of this uh, alcohol impact. And uh, the fragility, I suppose, of human beings in the face of these things. And, and then people being treated as if there's some kind of statistic or uh, some kind of throwaway uh, version of humanity. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that's what drives me a bit more these days rather than... Uh, there's, you know, there's some special place waiting for us when we, when we get out of here. You worked at the Central Land Council in the 1980s and uh, uh, we were there for that handback of Uluru and Katajuta National Park. Uh, what was that like? 
Well, Uluru was fantastic. It uh, it was a uh, Uluru came. It was a we'd taken a convoy to, to Canberra prior to the Uluru uh, handover, which uh, was a big protest, and uh, people occupied the old DAA offices, and we had Holding and Perkins and people like that asking us to see if we could talk people out of those offices so they could get the necessary work done to get the formalities of the transfer done. So there was a back there's a backstory to the Uluru handover, but Uluru itself um, is hugely significant. Uluru and Karajuta are hugely significant in Aboriginal uh, law and uh, custom uh, for many of us who don't live there. Uh, but our songs and, and ceremonies either come from there or go there. So it's um, it was it was a it was a great occasion, and knowing Yummy Lester and Yummy Wire and some of those old people who were uh, uh, who had fought so hard to get recognition for for Uluru, um, and, and working with them and being their mates and friends, uh, and seeing that uh, the, the and, and the shenanigans that the Northern Territory government carried on with to try and frustrate that and. Um, the federal government at least standing up on that occasion to uh, to make that happen, so it, it was a great occasion, uh, a good occasion to uh, to see that and to see a board that's you know was um, set up to run and manage it and uh, uh, e even some of the stupidity of I think Daryl Braithwaite or someone not, I don't know whether Daryl no Daryl Summers was saying that you know the kids were never going to be able to go to Uluru and see it at sunset. You know, there's some really weird and wonderful things being said about it. And they wouldn't be able to climb. Well, you wouldn't climb Uluru, you know. Anyone with any respect for other people's religions, you, you wouldn't climb it. Uh, but I see that that's come back with uh, some other uh, bit of lunacy from someone in recent days. Yeah, one of our colleagues likened it to people who want to go to Canberra and climb over the top of the War Memorial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, you wouldn't do it. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, you, you try that in the Parliament House and they put up a fence. Absolutely. <laughs> You're the first chair of the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation and you said you wanted to be based in Broome. Why? Well, I thought the uh, that if you... Big movements about national dynamics have got to be seen to have a respect and a rapport with the bush and the communities in the regions and not just seen as, a, as something that comes out of a city. I think if you don't have any, uh, if you don't have a connection to regional and remote Australia, then it's very hard for uh, those people to have hope that you really this is about them mm. as much as it is about the people who live in the cities. So that to me was an important uh, factor that um, this is where people butt up against each other on a daily basis. Um, it's not theoretical. There are real challenges here with. Uh, uh, drugs, alcohol, housing, uh, employment, um, the legacy issues of pearling and pastoralism and uh, missionaries and, you know, uh, public sector uh, domination. So you've got all those matters at your fingertips here and no one can run away from them. So when you're talking about reconciliation, you're not talking about some airy-fairy, um, nice, feely thing that... Uh, you can achieve on a, on a special day and then go home and forget about it. It's actually got to be integrated into the way you live life and the way you incorporate 
uh, and involve others of difference uh, in, in, your, in your life uh, and in the life of the community. So it was important that that, um, that was the case, but also it was important that uh, my little family at the time, I didn't want them being disrupted uh, from uh, where they were secure um, so that they could um, uh, pursue the, their education here um, and grow up you know, in, in the community basically rather than go to a city and try and find a way to live in a city. Um, but also that uh, if my personal commitment in, in going to other parts of Australia was a sign of my personal dedication to this, to this um, dream of uh, reconciliation and being prepared to sacrifice uh, the comforts in, of my own home mm. to go to where others are and to hope they will engage in the debate and discussion and dialogue about what reconciliation might mean in their places. That it wasn't just someone coming out of Canberra with, you know, fat TAs and uh, all of those things and uh, easily going up and down the eastern seaboard. You travelled <coughs> a huge amount in those, uh, those <coughs> years. Uh, you were ANSET's number one flyer for a period, uh, but ultimately weren't able to achieve what you wanted. And, and you said when you stepped down in 1997 that you feared for the spirit of the country. Uh, do you still have those concerns? And, and what is there we can learn from that experience that, to shape reconciliation today? Well, I think I, I said I, I feared for the spirit of the country because when, when governments and political leaders are faced with the opportunity to be magnanimous towards First Nations peoples and they turn away from that opportunity, that creates my fear. It's a fear that <coughs> the opportunity to be bigger than to just repeat the same old, same old uh, superiority or domination or ignorance or uh, um, subjugation of people uh, because it doesn't liberate it doesn't liberate the uh, the conquerors from their sense of superiority and therefore they will continue to perpetrate ongoing injustices so that's where that really emanates from it it's from a, a fear that there was not only going to be more pain and suffering for First Nations, but a, a lack of growth and understanding and maturity on the non-Indigenous side in order to evolve a, a better nation. So uh, we've, had, we've had a number of occasions where the, the, the Mabo judgment, the Wick judgment, the Stolen Generations um, report, um, the um, recent days, the Uluru statement from Uluru, uh, voice to the parliament, um, the, even the pre-existing incarnations of those voices, uh, the, Macro, the um, NAC, the NACC, ATSIC, that those sorts of opportunities for us as a nation to work through the, the challenges and the differences and find a better accommodation that gives us uh, a better relationship that, that uh, in my view, would deal with a lot of the, um, the, the negative things we see where 
people lose heart, uh, incarcerated, uh, domestic violence takes place, kids are taken off families. So this whole uh, negative uh, impact that happens to First Nations peoples precisely because there's no real reciprocation going on. Uh, there's a little bit of it, but it's not, it's not transformative uh, in the way that uh, an apology with Kevin Rudd's apology was a transformative thing because Howard had spent six or seven years, eight years, denying that this had even happened, and if it did, it was for the good of people despite the report and the lived experiences of people. So, um, and then the WIC uh, judgment on Howard's bucket and Fisher's bucket loads of extinguishment, uh, which is underpinning the native title law, and it's still today the extinguishment concept that this um, notion of native title is something to be feared, so let's extinguish it uh, so that it, and restore the, uh, the reality of Terranarius, mm. basically. So th this, this lack of growth in, uh, in the, in the um, leaders of the nation who should know better, who, who should know um, uh, better. Now, why they, why they fear First Nations peoples, I don't know. Uh, we, you know, we've, we've seen the, the might of the Chinese and the Japanese and we've been to war, you know, in those theatres. We've had people in camps. Uh, we've found ways to reconcile those relationships and build better relationships with, with those nations. Um, we, um, the, the fear of, of losing, I, I think, the quintessence of the Anglo-Celtic imprint on this nation is what makes these people afraid. Uh, they can be friends with people outside of Australia, but when it comes into the internal quality, the original theft, the, the accusation of Xavier Herbert rings loud, and the need to own up to that, to, to, to own the truth and find a way forward uh, constantly leaves us short, and we're obviously in the middle of that battle again. So my fear is that <coughs> the Howard government coming in and unpicking the fine work that was going on, not just by the Reconciliation Council, but by, by people who themselves, white and black, who had found ways to um, find accommodations, whether they're little fishing clubs, whether they're local governments, whether they were uh, the miners starting to see a different way of doing things, um, education people, professionals, that people were starting to see that there was different ways to relate and to reach out and, and you're not going to get accused or burnt, you're going to be able to grow and understand. But the top end of the leadership denies this, it, it denies it, it fears it. Uh, for whatever reason, you, you look at this from a political point of view and the, you know, the races and the rednecks in the village, but um, I, I think it's far deeper, I think it's about um, the, the, the admission that you shouldn't have written off the First Nations in the Constitution. They were a dying race, and they were still here. And you shouldn't have treated us the way you have uh, with the policies over the years of protectionism and assimilation. And that the, the time for an agreement, a treaty, is the mature thing we should be doing, rather than ducking from that and pretending that it's going to go away. It won't go away. It'll be there in some form uh, when I'm 
passed on, I'd imagine. I know you don't like being called the father of reconciliation, but how is it that you've been so effectively engaged with this issue for so long without becoming embittered? I think it's, I mean, I, I, because I think reconciliation isn't just about feeling good uh, with, and doing good things. It's really about healing these deep divisions that uh, divide us. And as I say, it's about agreement making, it's about truth telling, it's about owning up to um, the nature of our, of our society and the shortfalls, but also the positives of those things as well. But, but we've got to own up to the, the shortfalls uh, in order for us to mature and to, uh, to be a better nation than, than what we are. We're, we're, we're vulnerable internationally. Uh, we saw that with Mahati Air and Keating. Uh, the incarceration rates are uh, totally unacceptable. The taking of kids away uh, at the numbers at which we're taking them away now um, is, is, you know, an indictment upon upon us to get things right with First Nations people. Um, you, you you cannot continue to to just damage and uh, undermine and uh, belittle. Uh, people who's, who's come from such rich cultural roots. You know, Australia has very little to, to celebrate uh, in its own right, um, apart from its, um, you know, having a democracy that's sustained the, you know, sustained the, the, the test of time of 200 years. But there's not much around, <coughs> around that we have that um, we, we can take pride in. Um, we try to we try to cultivate that, but um, it's 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 hollow. It's the quality of the people that, that really matters. And we were getting there, I think, at the Second World War, when gradually we were starting to understand the impact and influence of other cultures in Australia. And I think we've got to get back to appreciating the other cultures of Australia, not just the Anglo-Celtic uh, structure, and that we've got to be able to celebrate that in a, in a far more nationalistic way rather than as a one that we celebrate from time to time and as if it's on the margin. It's really our national identity these days. I wanted to ask you about your younger brother Mick, who's a serious public, a public figure in his own right. Um, it's been said that the two of you embody different Australian approaches to reconciliation. He has a more forceful style than, than yours. You have a, a slightly gentler style. Uh, perhaps no coincidence, you became a priest and he went into the law. Uh, to what extent do you think that the two of you encapsulate different approaches to, to reconciliation? Oh, I think Mick's more, more uh, about having the blunt discussion uh, and uh, not wasting time. I, I like to give people a chance to um, be educated and not just retreat back to their prejudices. Um, and, and to try and discover a way that uh, we might find common ground. I think one great lesson that uh, the late Rick Farley uh, helped uh, the Reconciliation Council was this notion of finding common ground and then coming back and looking at the things that uh, you, you felt you disagreed upon and see whether you still disagree upon them. So if you can find common ground with people initially, then I think you can work, uh, work to deal with those things that may be uh, challenging or offensive to, to people because of their ignorance or misunderstanding. But I think if you confront people, uh, people are going to tend to um, defend themselves and you just have uh, 
you just have a uh, you know an adversarial system happening rather than a consensual one. You've repeatedly moved back to Broome, wanting to be here in in Yaru country. Um, I want you to say a little bit about what's special about about the country. I, I, I know you've you've said in the past that uh, uh, some white fellows don't know how to think themselves into the country, while many indigenous people find it hard to think without the land. Yeah. Um, what is it about land that's essential to a good life? Uh, well, it's 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 where you come from. It's 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 what we say our rye our. Our being is. This is where we're in the in the design of creation. Um, the Yaru were given this part of the country, this part of the world, uh, where our um, where our own origins come from. The land, our our rye. Um, we know when we we pass away, we back in this land, but we also go into the sky. We we, we go up into the Milky Way. Uh, in this part of the country, so um, uh, and you also know that all the people that went before you are here. Um, they're here in some way, shape, or form, or in some place. <coughs> and uh, this is this is where um, you're the most complete, in, in the sense that um, um, it um, you know you you you're in someone else's place wherever you, if you go once you go out of this part of the world, uh, and you say you've got to pay respect and, and that's fine you do that but um, but this is this is this is home this is a part of uh, of your your essence of uh, of where um, your strengths come from your what we call our our um, our, um, our lian our our being uh, is 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 at one, it's at one with the country, with the people, with the world, with the, um, and, they, and you could be in the middle of disputes and arguments, but this is where you're at one with yourself. Your, your Leon is, is at peace, um, and it's where your strength, your strength comes from. Your, um, you know, your, um, the, the, you only look at the country and you're reassured that, yes, you, you know this place, this place knows you. Um, so it's uh, it mightn't look much to people, but this is you know this is a, the land of the Yaru, uh, and it's uh, over sixty thousand years we've been living here in one way or another. You know, around the Roebuck Plains, there's today archaeological evidence showing that the sea was in there, and our people lived on the fringes of that. Um, our ceremonies are still here. Um, would uh, I don't know about 15, 20 boys through the initiation ceremonies last year? So right on the edge of this town, we were still conducting ancient ceremony. Do you conduct those ceremonies? Yeah, 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 yeah. We we uh, we uh, we do that. Uh, there's a group of the senior people that get involved with young people, and uh, then the communities come back to that. We'd lost that for a period of time, but the communities come back to that, uh, which is. We, we, when we first won the native title uh, claim here, language was our first step, uh, which we've done a lot of work in. The ceremonial life is the second stage, and we've, 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 we've done that, and we're doing other positive policy things in the town. Um, since I've been a politician, I've sort of moved away from the direct day-to-day uh, -day things that go on in the in the area, but uh, certainly the ceremonial activity, I still have responsibilities for that, and. And um, 
have oversight about how we go, what we do, and who goes in the ceremonies, who doesn't. And we link back to others in the Pilbara. So our law links in the Pilbara and goes from here, goes way back to Uluru. So there's a big, big um, song cycle that we were part of. Um, and I can recall my old grandfather talking about a big hill somewhere, a big rock somewhere in the middle of Australia. He'd never been to Alice Springs, but he knew about it. And people in central Australia talking about there's a there's a place somewhere where the sea is, and there's a little reef, and that's Cable Beach. This is this is a, you know the knowledge, of, mm. vast knowledge that people have got of these lands. How they got it, I don't know, but through the travel uh, of over the country and the song and the ceremony. And so we go, we go into the desert uh, to Lake uh, Gregory and those people there know of us, they know of this place. We've, we've traded with Pearl Shell uh, and we have far more kinship with, with those people. Uh, so when you see people from a cultural point of view, they could be the poorest person down the street here but they are, they are rich. And, and you have an obligation towards them. You know, someone might ask you for money and I might want to give it to them, but you, you, you see people, and he's not a beggar, he's a, he's a human being who is doing it tough here mm. and he shouldn't be here. Uh, and, but you, you're caught in a relationship and you've got to, you've got to honour a, a more important relationship. One day I might be in the desert and that man or that woman might be the person that helps me survive. Uh, because I won't know where the water is, or don't know, you know, where the food is. So reciprocity is a very important thing to the poorest, giving to the poor, and as well as receiving from the poor people. So, um, and that's what Broome teaches you. It teaches you, and it teaches you the the relationships with the, you know, the Malays who were over, stood over by the Japanese and the white guys. You know, so they they treated us as as brothers, as big eyes. We're brothers. And we could share food, and they give us food. You know? Because we were, our, our people didn't have a lot of food, but they would bring food from the sea, from the luggers. Um, and and people intermarried. They they saw people as humans, as another human being who uh, had much to offer. And then that really is the uh, the essence of uh, what I suppose helps me focus on the reconciliation side of life is that we, we are capable of something better than dismissing of people and disregarding people because we're either afraid of them or because we don't want to be bothered with them or because they, they exhibit nothing immediately in common with us. You know? But we've got to discover that with them. So that's, that's me. You were given a chance to come into politics uh, more than a decade before you ultimately said yes in 2016. Why was, why was 2016 the right time to make that change and enter politics? Oh, well, I concluded a number of things. We concluded the native title uh, um, litigation as well as the negotiations by that stage and we're in the implementation side of life and that was uh, in the hands of others. Um, I played a role with that, but I was more advisory and uh, guiding the the work that was being done. So the the hard work of successfully getting the native title recognised and then implemented 
had been done. So that work was um, was something that I'd always thought was important for me to be part of. And prior to that, I didn't have the opportunity to walk, step out of that, uh, and uh, and do the politics because it just would have been too difficult, or impossible probably. Um, I, I, I thought, well, uh, I was also about to make a move, a more clear-cut move with the Yaru to let the Yaru basically run and manage its own affairs more so than being there as a as a as a you know uh, as a clear supporter and and reassurance that people are going to find their own feet and work their way through these things and can't just be guided always by by people like me. Um, and that uh, I thought, well, I'd spent a fair bit of my life outside of politics, not really knowing what goes on inside of politics, and that many good people had carried the flag for First Nations peoples inside politics, across, from my superficial view, from from across the, the political spectrum, from whatever parties, at different times. When we lobbied the, the parliament, there were different people who seemed empathetic to our point of view and who would argue uh, our propositions. Um, and so I thought, well, it's it's time to shoulder some of that burden, at least in these uh, these twilight years of mine, as it were, to indicate to younger people that the polit being in politics doesn't have to always be about the madness. You can try and do some good things in there. Uh, it doesn't matter what party you belong to. I prefer them to be members of the Labor Party, of course, but but you, you can do some really good things. And if the party... Uh, is responsive, as the Labor Party has been, I think, since uh, certainly my period in there. The things we've done and our platform and our commitment to the Uluru Statement and treaty and voice and um, constitutional recognition, all of those things, but also to greater, greater justice for people, to reform of the CDP that has to happen and, uh, uh, you know, greater housing and uh, education. Um, and empowering people, basically putting power back into the hands of people. So uh, the Labor Party has always had a, a great deal of empathy, even though I'd never been a member of the Labor Party, um, even though I got ballot up once by by one of the famous uh, number crunches of the Labor Party outside the, the Hobart uh, ALP conference uh, one year. But uh, that's another story. But, but it's... Um, How would you get belted up? <clears throat> Oh, well, I think the I think the power broker thought I was a member of the party, and uh, when I started calling him out and said, "You come out here, <laughs> come out here," and sort the problems out, <laughs> he thought that was taking it a bit too far. But anyway, um, but you know, and 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 the Labor Party also has had its its ups and downs. It's it's not pure in terms of the First Nations history, but again, on on a process of reconciliation. There's no reason why the Labor Party has to be locked back into the old assimilationist um, policies of, you know, white Australia. There's no mm. need for that to be their position these days. And we move from that. We move from that. And there's great need for us to be far more, I think, not necessarily radical, but far more intrusive into the dynamics that cause people uh, a lot of pain and uh, frustration and alienation in our society who aren't achieving 
anything like the equality that they could be achieving because of policies that favour the other end of town. You know, it's uh, and and I think we've just got to there's there's, a, there's real chances for that sort of change, whereas I don't see that happening on the other side of uh, politics. And the and the um, crossbenchers are good for making noise, and they're very good people, some of them, very dedicated, but the. They'll never get to run the country. Some of them may be brokers at different times, but they never get to run the country in a way that uh, a party could run the country and do some really fantastic things to, to create its uh, its ethos and its um, its character and, and influence the quality of our civil uh, obligations towards each other. Um, so it's when the chance came, I said, well, it would be good to go and investigate, see how these things work, and is there any real any real avenues there, or is this just a dream? <laughs> I've had a couple of quick final questions. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um, I think I would, would have, would have uh, said study a bit more. Um, although I did a fair bit of study, I, I, I did philosophy and theology, and I studied a lot. Of things, um, I, I think the become a bit more astute to the political framework that uh, operates and determines the uh, parameters of the nation's uh, qualities, which is people who make laws in this nation. Uh, would have taken a bit more notice of how that actually worked, mm. and. Um, rather than see him as a mass of uh, disconnected uh, individuals who are about power and authority and uh, without any... but had real impact and real influence without necessarily me seeing the connection of that. Mm. I think I'd want to be, want to be able to... I would have been uh, wanting to be a bit more astute to that. Um, and I think... Um, Probably uh, maybe aligning a, a bit earlier with with one or other of the parties, maybe the Labor Party, in order to be for the longer term um, change. The the movement of First Nations peoples are movements that uh, that that are necessary from time to time because they uh, there's no one else that's going to move anything. Uh, on our behalf, um, but we should have learnt to pick up the ball when it went into the other theatre, I think, that is the political theatre a lot earlier, uh, to be, be bigger players uh, or more effective players on our own behalf, uh, rather than simply influencing the, the play and then getting out of the, the play. Uh, that's, I, th I think that's what I would have taken a bit more note of. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, I, I, I don't believe that... Uh, I used to believe that we were in need of some sort of salvation and I don't believe that anymore. I believe that we are saved and that what we are doing is... Uh, what we do is really the measure of the quality of that salvation uh, being uh, reflected... Uh, on this earth in order to make a quality of life for people. So there's, there's, this, there's this notion that there is, you need to do all of these good things otherwise you won't be saved. Well, I, I don't believe that. 
I believe that whatever happened through the incarnation and death and resurrection of Christ did all of that. We now have the opportunity to liberate our own selves uh, in a way that is commensurate with uh, with uh, developing the best of our abilities and humanity uh, with what we've got. Um, and to the extent that we invest in that, uh, to that extent we, we're, we're achieving our own salvation, basically. When are you most happy? When I'm here in Broome. <laughs> no, when I'm with friends, I think, uh, when I'm happy, uh, when I'm home. Um, just probably when I'm fishing, I suppose, that's when I'm most happiest, when I can throw a line and sit up and watch the water and the fish go by. None of them ever bite me line. What's your favourite fishing spot? Oh, there's a number of them around. I don't mind going up the Fitzroy River or out on the boat across the bay um, over towards uh, Thangu, which is where our traditional lands are. So um, uh, that, they're nice fishing spots, but there are many nice places around. And finally, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, it's, I think my mother. Uh, I think she has... Uh, She's had to battle. Uh, she had to battle most of her life um, to um, against injustices and against against men. Basically, Even my father was brutal at times, um, but I, I think uh, she uh, always stood up for uh, for what was right. And um, uh, and, there, and there are others who have confirmed that, I think. Uh, as I said, Mrs Gartland was always a, a strong person from another culture who uh, uh, wouldn't allow injustices to be uh, perpetrated because I was a kid and someone had power. Uh, so they're, they're two strong women, but on the outside of that, of course, I admire Faith Bandler and Jesse Street tremendously because of their work in the 67 referendum. Um, Vincent Lingiari, of course, is one of my great heroes. Um, and uh, as a kid, we went to the Rights for Whites meeting in Catherine when they bus-loaded people in there to condemn the Gurindji for walking off the off the off the stations and going to Dagaragu. So, so Vincent was a real, and I've met Vincent late in life when he was uh, pretty much dying, and we went up to hand over the. Um, title deeds under the Land Rights Act uh, for uh, Calcarini uh, to him. So uh, a lot of these old, older leaders that I met from the desert, uh, just powerful uh, men and, and women who, um, who would travel for miles and miles on the back of trucks in those days to come to meetings and stand up and express a point of view and uh, demand that's, that we take action and that those of us who could speak English should speak up and do something for them. <laughs> you know, it's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group of men and women that um, have had big impacts on my life. And some of them are from family and some of them from outside of family, of course. Well, Pat, we've had a fascinating conversation. We haven't touched aspects of your life like your AFL career or how you uh, grew, grew a beard, but I'd uh, direct people who are interested in your extraordinary life to Kevin Keefe's 2003 biography of you, Paddy's Road. Uh, and all that's left to say is thanks so much for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. 
We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.